Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. How can Black feminism lead to our collective liberation? Today, we hear from two Black feminist writers, thinkers, and activists, Stella Dadsey and Shardine Taylor Stone, who discuss internationalism, the importance of collectivity, the role history plays in achieving justice, and hope in difficult times. To convene that conversation, I'll hand over to my History Workshop colleague, Rosa Campbell. So welcome to the History Workshop podcast. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you if you could both begin by telling us uh, and our listeners a little bit about what you've been working on and how it fits into your broader work as writers and Black feminists and activists. Uh, Stella, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure, if, you, if you'd like me to. Um, well, I suppose the most relevant piece of work is A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery and Resistance. It's um, a book about how women experienced and resisted mm. enslavement in the West Indies. And uh, I'm actually often asked whether it was written as a sequel to The Heart of the Race. And uh, mm. I have to say it wasn't consciously written as such, but certainly it acts in, in, in a way as a kind of prequel to it, in that it is a story of gendered barbarity, but it's also a story of gendered resistance. And in many respects, I, I have to say that it was quite timely. You know, I've been working on it for, for a while now, but it came out in the aftermath of, of Black Lives Matter. And as such, it, it's been very well received. How does it fit into my broader work? I think that's that's fairly apparent. You know, I am a feminist historian. I believe that, you know, it's really important for us to unearth those hidden histories, hidden histories. And I'm also an educator. So for me, it fits very neatly into current struggles to decolonize the curriculum and mm -hmm. to provide young people, particularly black young people, with an alternative version of their history, which they can be proud of. Mm -hmm. I think uh, slavery has often been told as a story of victimhood and it's really important that we see the achievements and the very survival of our ancestors as something to be hugely proud of. Um, there are many, many role models amongst them who can be offered to our young people as something to aspire to and um, I hope that that's what the book will achieve. So I'm Steen Taylor-Stone and I'm a writer, activist, musician. So I'm also, I'm currently writing a book, writing the book, as I keep saying, it's such a long process. So it's great to hear um, how people have got through it. So my book's called Sold Out, How Black Feminism Lost Its Soul. And it's really just a, a reflection on some aspects where people have taken the politics of black feminism and turned it into a pro-catalyst neoliberal feminism. So it's looking at how big companies, such as Uber, such as Google, mm. such as Adidas, take the messaging of black feminism and use them to, you know, for profit, essentially. 
so it's kind of like looking at ways that we can make sure that we challenge these companies of how they're using the sort of imagery. You know, a good example recently would be Google using Olive Morris as one of their sort of Google doodles. But then, you know, we do exist in an environment where Google are data mining as well. So, you know, it's like, where does those, where do those politics fit in with the kind of imagery that Google is using to promote itself as a diverse company? So just making sure that we're always remaining critical and in some ways protective of what our, our legacies and mm. histories are. And so they don't get absorbed and then turned into something that they're not. So it's about that. I'm also like I said, a trade unionist, so I'm in the Musicians Union, quite active in that. And also I'm training to be a barrister very soon. So again, it's just sort of working mainly in employment, immigration, and mm. just doing things which I see as being kind of interventions and that support the community. So all of my work is around that, and that includes the band as well, Big Joni, which is a black feminist punk band, and our principles are very much within that. We recently turned down a, I can't say the brands are not allowed, but we recently turned down um, using our music being used on a certain trainer's brand for those reasons. It's like, well, if you want to mm -hmm. use our music, how much are you paying the women that make your trainers in the global south? You know, having us there is not exactly going to compensate for the fact that you're underpaying those women. So it's just things like that that we talk about within the band, as well as creating music for ourselves and by ourselves in a sort of DIY punk way. Super, super. So it's it's clear that history is, you know, a fundamental part of both of your work. But I wondered what role you um, see that history might play in changing the present? Ooh, I mean, this you want me to question. go first? <laughs> you want to go, go, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I think it's central, really. I, I can't see any other purpose for studying history. You know, I often quote um, Marcus Garvey, you know, people without knowledge of their past history and culture is like a tree without roots. I often quote Richard Zimler, who came up with this wonderful quote, our lives are written in ink that is bequeathed to us. And I firmly believe that our understanding of our present is shaped and informed by our understanding of the past. So the two for me are, you know, inextricably linked. And, you know, that's particularly important for black women, because as we well know, we've been airbrushed out of the picture our story has often been cloaked in either a veil of silence or in, in, in racism or misogyny. Mm. And the story, the particular story of enslaved black women is, is rarely spoken about. Um, it's a very male narrative. So I think for all those reasons, history is absolutely central to my work. And I really do believe that, you know, if you think about the recent Black Lives Matter interventions and the way the younger generations are beginning to demand visibility they're beginning to, beginning to demand that the curriculum is changed to include them and and their histories what we will see it hopefully is is a generation of people coming up who are informed by their history and 
learn the lessons of the past I think that's the big issue isn't it it's mm. not just knowing your history it's it's being able to learn the lessons so that you don't repeat past mistakes mm-hmm. I mean it's quite interesting you say that as well because what I would say is that what we could be learning from history now is because we are making some of those same mistakes um, yeah. in the movements now and I think also what we are seeing is an unwillingness to engage with that history because it challenges some of the ideas that people have around certain things Mm. that are comfortable Mm. that you know get all the sort of likes on social media and you know start debates and stuff but actually when you look at sort of movements that have worked to some degree and made like actual sort of material progress they don't look the way that people want them to look and there's different groups of people in there that they don't want to accept that were part of that movement and mm. um so that's why it's really important for us to to look at look at that history and and learn from it um i think one of the main things that i would say that even for um, black lives matter as well which i think is a fantastic movement but i think in terms of its organizational structure and its goals and aims it hasn't been very clear Whereas I think in the past, people were very clear about what it is that they wanted. It was, you know, we are, I don't know, socialists or we are nationalists, whatever it is. And this is what we want. Mm. And there was a very sort of clear and concise work to try and get some material change for black people. And that came about through supplementary schools. It came around in bookshops. It came around and what have you. And I think that's something that we're kind of lacking now. So there's a lot of talk about representation and, you know, we've got things on galleries and we've got all of this stuff going on, which is nice, but all of that stuff is quite temporary. And it's like, well, then, you know, so what what do we do then about this bill that's coming through? What then do we do Mm. about the DV shelter down the road losing funding? I feel like in the past there was a bit more focus on on that more so than just kind of individuals and yeah I I think you're right I I was going to say that you know having lived through the the 60s and 70s and and the struggles that were prominent in those days it's very easy now looking back to see them as coherent struggles but obviously Mm -hmm. there were divisions and and schisms in that context as well but I think you're right Shardine there was um, a clearer focus and and what we're dealing with now is a sort of very amorphous list of demands and aims that very neatly ties in with your critique of neoliberalism because mm. it's almost like one size fits all you know <laughs> if that makes any sense you know that we can see major brands sticking Black Lives Matter up in the corner of their adverts when as you say they're their attitude to the lives of black people in the countries where their labor is is exploited Mm -hmm. is very different so we need to be on our guard I I absolutely agree with you and Mm -hmm. um, yeah we need to be focused we need to recognize that identity politics and individualism and me first kind of mentalities do not actually advance our struggle as effectively as collective struggles that seek to speak on behalf of the unvoiced and do not presume that everybody simply wants to gain visibility or achieve 
a better wage. I think for some people, the struggle is still very much about basic human rights, food, clothing, mm. shelter. Mm. I'm struck by both of your, um, the internationalism in your work as well. Isharin, even hearing you speak a little bit about your new book. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the role internationalism has played in your work and how you understand internationalism. Um, well, I mean, it's always going to be that because I'm an international socialist. This so. <laughs> 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 is how, you know, if it's, I really don't understand how anyone could not have that politics. It's particularly being a black woman. Mm. You know, my mother is from Trinidad. My father is mixed race Jamaican and English. I mean, you know, I'm always engaged in what's going on across borders and thinking about, you know, what, what exactly are borders and how borders have harmed our community as well. And, um, you know, people trying to get visas, you know, we're seeing some Brexit now, all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And also, you know, it's about talking about empire you know dismantling those kind of histories and that requires you to have an international outlook on everything as Mm. well and how this country particularly absorbs and takes from everywhere else not just during the colonial period but after it as well which it still does its relationship with the Caribbean is still in a kind of lopsided Mm. way where we think that we can just go to Jamaica and build some prisons and put people in there because we can so that's why we it's really important for us to keep that internationalist politics that's just that doesn't center America all the time so Mm. I mean this is where I have to be critical for myself in some ways because it's so easy because I know everything about American politics and black politics there but actually actively trying to sort of I'm in the process of actively trying to learn more about Latin America and even more about the Caribbean as well and on um across the continent in Africa as well because there's lots of really amazing interesting work being done and trying to actually sort of refocus my view there because I think even for those of us who might be on the left or you know whatever movements we are in here there's a tendency to not think think that we we don't have to learn from those places Mm. we're happy to learn from America Anything America's doing there, we were like, oh, yeah, let's do our own version here. That happened with Black Lives Matter, for example. But actually, you know, where we're actually seeing really brilliant strength, I think about, well, she's passed off because she was murdered, um, Arely Franco in Brazil, the work that she was doing in her community as a trade unionist, all those Black Brazilian women who are doing a fantastic work there, and yeah, so I'm, that's the process that I'm in right now, actually trying to sort of, what's the phrase, put my money where my mouth is and actually try and, and, try and do that rather than just talking about it. Well, like Shadine, I describe myself as an old Marxist. I still believe that workers of the world should unite in whatever way possible and certainly offer each other solidarity and support. And um, in fact, thinking back, one of the unique features of OAD, Mm. Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, was that it's had a politics that was grounded in internationalism. You know, we based our organisation around the principle of African and Asian unity 
we kept a very, very close eye on what was happening in our countries of origin. And as Shardine said, you know, it's, it would be impossible not to because we mm. represented probably every corner of the globe. And I think that sense of connectedness, that ongoing dialogue with the diaspora was really important. And not only did it help to shape and mould our politics, but it also ensured that we didn't end up navel gazing. Um, you know, a lot of what Shardine just said really resonated because I do think that Black Lives Matter wherever they are. And um, mm. I'm not in any way wanting to detract from the horrendous murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others um, to numerous to mention. But while there are children dying of preventable diseases uh, on the continent of Africa, we can't afford to simply focus on what happens to us here in the West. Mm. Um, I think that would be one of my major critiques of the movement that it doesn't look outward enough and that we are too easily seduced by petty squabbles and issues that mm. affect us here, but actually have no impact on, on, on the wider world. And, you know, internationalism is all the more important now, isn't it? Because the issues that concern us are global. Mm. You know, I agree with Shardine, you know, borders have, have done us a disservice. And I can remember being involved in conferences in the 90s during the Bosnian War, where we had a really good feminist critique of nationalism. Um, we understood how it impacted on women's lives, mm. both in terms of displacement, migration, poverty, hunger, the way rape is used as a weapon. There's so many ways in which mm. that uh, those issues sort of, the ramifications that kind of carry on, on, on and on and on. So, yeah, the issues that concern us are global. We need a global focus and mm. um, we need to be very, very careful here in the West not to just um, disappear up our own proverbial, I'm going to say navels, just to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> Stella, I wanted to ask you specifically about um, going to Yugoslavia, the work you did in Yugoslavia. Mm. Which I, which you just mentioned in the interview at the end of the back of the heart of the race, the new edition. I just wondered if you could, if you could talk about that a little bit because it really um, sparked my interest when I read it. Okay, yeah, um, I found myself working with a group called the Frauenanstiftung in Germany. They were funded by the Green Party, and although I would have loved to be in their Africa section and be sent to South Africa and other parts of the African continent. Somehow I find myself working with the Eastern Europeans. And of course it was right in the middle of the war. So we spent a lot of time going over to um, Slovenia and places like that and organizing events. And when the funding looked like it was running out, we decided to move away from the tradition of holding a conference, which could only cater for a certain number of women and usually happened in some hotel. And mm. we organized a woman's study camp on the principle of each one teach one. And it attracted over 250 women from all corners of Europe, you know, from farthest corners of Russia, you know, there were women there who had never been outside their village and really, you know, radical feminist German women who walked around topless and shaved, shaved <laughs> their hair, you know, and everything in between. But I and uh, my friend Maria was one of the one of the two black women 
in attendance and it was a really interesting experience on so many levels I couldn't begin I'd take up the rest of the interview if I told you all about it but yes it was hugely empowering and very important Mm. we called it the Flussfeld camp which in German means the hippopotamus camp because it was located on the side of a river and we literally camped and um, wrote out this huge great timetable where everybody who had something to teach could teach someone else and vice versa. Wow. Um, two weeks. Um, I will never go camping again. <laughs> but um, it was, it was, yes, it was a, a, a real moment, a real mm. moment. And, um, you know, for those of us, we had a reunion a, a couple of years ago before the lockdown in Berlin some of us are no longer with us but there were quite a few people who turned up and we realized what what an important event it was you know both as an example of how women can organize but also just Mm. a truly internationalist event Mm. um, in which um, we were I have to say really humbled by the stories and experiences of women who literally had come straight out of the war and a situation places like um, Shrevranichka where they were being bombed and bombarded and yeah it was it was amazing it was amazing sounds amazing and I think you know just what you're saying there it's like having a camp and all that kind of stuff that's we talked about you know things that we can live in history is exactly the sort of thing that we require we, we need now actually and um you know, some of us did that Black British Feminist Conference about five years ago, I think it was, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. with um, Liz and some others. And it, it was a very similar experience as well. And what I'm sort of reflecting on in the book as well, actually, again, self-critique lessons and stuff, like how I think that that sort of event, if that happens now, which I have mm. seen kind of happen now, has been commercialized in a way mm. so it's like the, the focus isn't just on like let's come together as women and let's organize as women you know for a common goal it's becomes a sort of a festival which you, you know you have to pay this money for and like a like an expo really mm. I, yeah. I don't know yeah. any I mean, unless I'm going to organise it, but like, <laughs> I haven't got time to do it. I'm, you know, someone else <laughs> needs to do this for once. I can't think of anything that's around right now that has that that similar sort of vibe that you just described there, mm. so, which is sad. Mm. Which I think is really sad. Mm. So if anyone's listening to this, you know, now's your time. Shanine, <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you about the 2015 conference? On reflection, what was so what what made that conference a real moment for you? Um, well, because I'm um, I'm a romanticist, so we um, we put it on at the the Ben Centre, which is where Stella, and this is in Brixton, by the way, which is where um, Stella and all those like had their OADs. But we were downstairs; they were upstairs in the big room. We were downstairs mm-hmm. in the small room. And um, and I think I, I wanted to put it on because there was clearly something happening in terms of a kind of a bit of a sort of black feminist revival that was beginning around that time. Mm. Connected to Black Lives Matter and there was all these kind of talks and groups and spaces happening. So I just wanted to sort of bring it all together, but make it intergenerational as well. So, mm. you know, people came um, there were speakers um, who were from OWAD, we saw some films, 
we had um, wisdom circles, which was like a, that sort of each one teach one um, concept, um, a disco panel food, you know, things like that. And um, there was a, a walking women's history, black women's history walking tour around mm. Brixton as well that we did. So, I mean, in terms of it being a moment, I think well, it was just a really amazing event and people really, you know, appreciated it. I think what was interesting, if, if I look at it in a sort of timeline, and like I said earlier, I could see these, these other politics starting to come in because I had a whole argument with someone about sponsorship and I was like, we don't need mm. sponsorship. Do you mean? Like, mm. I, you know, and it was like, well, that would help to pay for this, that and the other. And I was like, well, we can fundraise like people used to do. You know, I'm a punk, so this is where my... So I'll just do, I'll just put on a, you know, put on a show and people will pay and then, well, you know, that will pay for everything. Mm. So that was already starting to seep in there. So I think in terms of it being a moment, writing about it as an introduction of my book, actually, why well, I actually say that it was kind of like the end of that old politic and the beginning of the new. Mm. And it's quite interesting to reflect on that change and that time and why that happened at that time and mm. um, different ideas about what it means to support black women actually so I could see those two different conflicting ideas that were starting to develop in that mm. um, conference so um, yeah I'll talk about that. Mm. Wow um, I'd love to just hear why you think that changed at that time and maybe Stella as well what do you think was happening around 2015? Oh god that's a good question what Ooh, do you think Stella? I think I'd better ask you first I don't know I I, I you know the, the sort of obvious answers are you know the influence of social media uh, I think you know we've had some fairly prominent black women um, thrust at us on our screens in recent years uh, Michelle Obama more recently, Kamala Harris. But um, in 2015, we were very sort of focused, weren't we, on, on you know, some quite prominent black women. And, you know, just, just having them in front of us, in a way, is a subliminal message, isn't it? You two can be like her. You should aspire to do what they do without any kind of critical analysis of what, what role or function they play in society. Mm-hmm. Personally... While I'm happy to see Michelle as a, as a descendant of former slaves reach the position she did, the truth is that you don't get into those positions without being a member or an aspiring member of the American ruling class. And the same is true of mm-hmm. Megan and, and various others that we talk about. So mm-hmm. I think you're right, Shadin, we have to be very careful that our struggles aren't co-opted. I can remember years ago actually being asked to write a paper about the institutionalization of feminism. And, um, you know, in a way I can sort of trace what you're talking about back to way further back than 2015, just just in the way that all of a sudden we saw women's centres springing up Mm -hmm. um, that were funded by local authorities and women's equality officers, people started to be paid for a role that previously had been performed by activists in the Mm. community. So, you know, we were caught in a double bind. We wanted to be heard. We wanted to be a voice at the Mm. table or a presence at the table. On the other hand, there were all these dangers of co-option. And we all know that once you start Mm. getting 
paid for a job like that, then you mm. have a stake in the system. Mm. So I think 2015 might have been your moment. I think for me it was it was even sooner than that. And the, the impact of social media has been phenomenal, hasn't it? Mm. Um, because, as you say, there, there are algorithms now that um, can determine or identify what what interests us and and play on that. And mm. if they see that issues of black feminism or whatever else are being talked about a lot, then they're going to market their products to, to meet our aspirations. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't just get subsumed within this huge, great capitalist enterprise and find ourselves you know, caught between the contradictions that arise as a result of it. No, totally, absolutely. Oh, God. I mean, I think there's so many factors why I think 2015... 2014 one of them is just it's just simply a generation that's known nothing else of other than neoliberalism you know it's new labor generation mm. so i think that's an important thing to think about and in terms of like the so, sort of social justice movements that a lot of people sort of came out of those kind of internationalist trade union social politics weren't really at the heart of it it was kind of like you know single issue struggles so I think um, people tended to think about issues rather than collective issues, if that makes any sense, collective goals. And also, yes, social media, absolutely. But I actually think the sort of impact of Kimberly Crenshaw's sort of intersectionality theory and how that kind of re-popped up again, because, you know, she came up with it in the 80s, but how it kind of re-kind re of popped up again within a certain kind of atmosphere of sort of individualism and Michelle Obama's and all that kind of stuff. I think that it kind of got conflated with that. And so people mm. took it in a way where they misunderstood it. Mm. And now, what have we now, five, six years down the line, we're now in a place where people are saying that Trinidadians are no longer black, just like just ridiculous things because of this sort of, intersectionist intersectionist idea with a kind of racial hierarchy and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of like gets into a splitting hairs ideology mm. and this is where we are and you know Kimberly Crenshaw said herself you know that's not what I was talking about I wasn't talking about 300 different identities and whose identity is you know the, the least privileged identity and the most privileged identity I was talking about how in, in the literal sense that the system has, the legal system particularly, because she's a lawyer, she's a um, legal academic, has holes in it which don't protect black women. It, you know, that's literally what mm. her paper was about. Mm. And um, if you're taking it out of the context of which she's talking about and then putting it into a room where, you know, people are trying to be heard, then you have all those sort of problems of people trying to silence other people on quite minor things, really, mm. rather than thinking about our shared experiences. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, people talk about intersectionality like they've just discovered it. And I know that um, through the 70s and 80s, we were very clear that our struggles as black women were about um, struggles that met at the interface of race, class and gender. And um, 
you know, it wasn't about a hierarchy of oppression. It was about recognising the different ways those things impacted on our lives and mm. uh, recognising the nuance um, that existed. But yes, we're, we're into an age of identity politics and everybody wants to be unique and different from everybody else. And what strikes me is how very much that plays into historical policies of divide and rule. Because the more divided we are, the easier it is to allow us to squabble amongst ourselves, while those who would wish to exploit and destroy our world continue unchallenged. And um, I've been struck, I'm not going to be too controversial and mention anything in particular, but I've been struck in recent weeks and months that how easily we all get subsumed in these petty debates about stuff that has no relevance mm-hmm. to the wider world you know we're li- we're on a, a little ball of rock spinning around at 65,000 miles an hour and really pretty much in a handcart to hell and here we are squabbling about stuff that really has no real importance to issues of survival mm-hmm. and issues of equality and issues of justice Yeah, I I do think we need to be careful Mm. and um, we need to reassert the voice of reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm quite happy to be controversial. Yeah, go, 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 go. I mean, sorry, Rosa, I think this is a really important point point of the Mm. podcast, actually. But, um, you know, if we look at what happened around with Sarah Everard, for example, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and... mm -hmm. um, there was an Asian sister then who was also murdered. And then there was mm-hmm. um, two black women who were murdered a few, I think a mm-hmm. year earlier and mm-hmm. the police had done nothing. So, you know, I've always a, a sort of strategist. So, so, so Everard's, I mean, it was just horrific. Mm-hmm. You know, it's absolutely, it's extremely frightening. And I thought rather than as feminist activists, mm-hmm. or as any activists, anti-police, whatever, taking it on as a way to speak about gendered violence in a way that can everybody across the country can understand and appeal to from mm. sort of suburban woman up in the Midlands, like in my hometown, or, you know, someone more in a sort of urban environment in London. Because it's, it's a, it's, a white woman, even though she had a black grandmother, but that's something we really wanted to go into that, but she was a white woman, let's just stick with that. This should have been an opportunity to say, we live in a, you know, an extremely violent society towards women. And then we can talk about how this then also talks, connects to violence towards black women. But we need to get people on board in the conversation, mm. otherwise we're just talking to ourselves. Mm. What happens? is that within five minutes, it was so frustrating, within like five minutes of it sort of, you know, we all knew what happened. We know how the police had completely messed up. And then it got into the old privilege politics again. Mm. So it's like, oh yes, we're only hearing about her because she's a white woman. Well, yes, we are only hearing about her because she's a white woman. But then does that mean that we don't talk about her at all? And it got into a place where it was, I saw a few people saying that, oh, well, we shouldn't engage with this at all. We, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't bother. Why mm. should we bother? Mm. And it was, it was quite sort of 
rather than being like this is an opportunity to then talk about all the other women this happened to her and it ha happens to us too it mm. became well that's Let's not talk about her at all because actually you should be talking about them so it became a sort of there's this one platform space and only one dead woman frankly can be in that space mm. we can't talk about all of them because we don't have the capacity mm. so we're fighting over which dead woman should have the most profile mm. which is shocking it's mm. absolutely mm. shocking and yeah. you see this pattern so it was then, oh, I'm going to be absolutely terrible, but um, I can't remember her name right now, who was murdered in um, Kidbrook. Mm. And um, there was an Asian woman. And then I heard at the vigil that was being held for her, someone got on the stage and started having a go at, not at the police who were invited to speak, not at men for not doing anything, but other white women in the audience mm. who had attended to pay their respects and show some solidarity of a woman of colour that had been murdered. So, you know, tell me how exactly is that supposed to be building a movement there if you're actually mm. having a go mm. at the people who've made an effort to come? These should be your comrades, your allies, mm. but instead you're making those women an en enemy, not the state for its failings. Yeah. As I said, Shardine, uh, we have to really guard against divide and rule. Mm. And that's a perfect example of how women should be coming together. But in fact, they end up squabbling amongst themselves. And there's mm. countless other examples mm. that we could name, I think. And um, it serves the purpose of those who rule very well, because mm. it takes energy to be in conflict. Mm. And while we're busy squabbling amongst ourselves, you know, nothing changes. I think we should have moved beyond that and recognised that there is power in allyship. And as I said earlier, not only do I believe that workers of the world should unite, but, you know, I believe in genuine solidarity amongst those who share common experiences and common goals. And if we focus on our commonalities rather than our differences, we will be so much more powerful mm. and so much more effective. So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Shadin. It's a pity that we're getting deflected and allowing ourselves, allowing this to happen. Mm. I'm not saying I know how we challenge it, but because I, I have consciously not engage with social media you won't find you won't find uh, my twitter account you won't find my facebook i just don't deal with it and mm. that's how i i engage with it i just refuse to get sucked in i i, I just find um the concept of following anyone or being followed just mm. totally bizarre but that's a generational thing i think and just ask just to make one last point rose i think the right. you know in terms of what you said this so about like being powerful that moment with um sarah everard where it was so explicit that the one the police are corrupt but also they're harboring these violent men we should have been seeing mass movements of women walking the streets that should have been a moment that really kind of kick-started a sort of national feminist new movement but it didn't mm. Because mm. we got caught up in those squabbles, mm. so absolutely, you know, it, it, the, these politics are dangerous, and there's a lot to lose. Yeah, absolutely.
I wonder if you feel that your own writing, though, both of you, your own writing can intervene because, you know, Shadin, you're talking about particularly like the misinterpretation of intersectionality, which is very much like an academic term. And so I wonder if you feel like your own work to kind of cultivate intellectual ideas outside of academic circles can intervene a bit in these debates and how important you feel like public history is or work for public audiences. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not really doing anything that's new. You know, I'm not doing anything new. I'm literally doing like a rehash of Heart of the Race, basically. That's what's happening. So, I mean, I think in terms of what I'm trying to do is really just to present ideas that have already been done, but they've already been done really well. I don't Mm -hmm. need to go over it again. We're just applying it to what's happening now in a language that people can understand, really. Mm. That's about it. And, yeah, that, that language that people can understand is really important, isn't it? Because so many of these discussions take place in ivory towers where um, only certain people have access to the ideas and and the uh, suggested solutions. Um, I've always felt that there's little point in studying or examining history if we don't first ask ourselves who the history is for. And, you know, I've always seen, as I said earlier, history as a tool of empowerment. So, it has always been part of my project to make these debates more accessible to my community and to ensure that the discussions take place in in the context of a wider audience. And Mm. and I've been really, really pleased. I think that's one of the offshoots, the positive offshoots of this new kind of uh, Black Lives Matter moment that, you know, mainstream media are picking up these issues in a way they probably never would have. And um, what it means is a lot more people are having these discussions at the beginning. I mean, this morning I did a um, talk to uh, the University of the Third Age and I was expecting, you know, quite a lot of old elderly people. I say elderly, I'm going to be 70 <laughs> in a couple of months, so <laughs> I probably should count myself in, in that in that group but you know I was expecting a very typical crouch end kind of audience put it like that and in many ways it was but what was interesting is that these were women I suspect many of them would identify themselves as as, as feminists back in the day and they were really engaged they were engaged with the story of what happened to enslaved black women in the West Indies that asked all kinds of interesting questions they made the links between historical slavery and uh, current migration Mm. issues that are affecting women and littering our oceans with the bodies of black women to this day Mm. and it really really pleased me that here I am having a discussion with a group that probably may might not have attended had it been an in-person event I don't know Mm. and there you go um looking on the positive side of the pandemic and all these other things that are going on and the, the increasing reliance on Zoom, that's one of the positive offshoots. And it does enable us, as you say, to reach a wider audience and to ensure that um, the debate is more democratic. I know that part of the success, uh, Shardine said you're sort of writing a, a rehash of the heart of the race, or part of its success was that we used what is referred to as the collective we, 
we told the history from our standpoint mm. as black women as we felt it as we saw it and that enabled us to in a way reclaim our history and to say this is what is happening to us mm. and I think that's important too because quite often we've been written about you know if you think about the sort of traditional historical text it's not us writing those stories it's others writing those story stories on our behalf so yes. it's it's really important that we mm. both remember our audience and remember that not everybody's had an academic mm. background or, or whatever and also try to speak in a language which is accessible to them uh, if, if I was ever asked you know what is the single factor that has made both these books successful I would say it is that you know Absolutely. accessibility that yeah. that that attempt to to tell it like it is in an accessible language mm. and that is good writing I mean that's the thing if you're a good writer then you know how to communicate to as many people as as you can and I think if you think about like you know Angela Davis um you know obviously so Dadsy, Audrey Lords, Pearl Hooks as well Pearl Hooks is mm. some of the most accessible Black feminist writers, I find. And even, you know, people like R. James, Stuart Hall, like these people, are, you know, these were like intellectual giants, all of those people I've mentioned there. But their work is accessible because otherwise, mm. what is the point? Why are you writing it? Mm. You know, we're not writing academic mm. papers here. Mm. You know what I mean? You want people to be, I think it's really important for me in my writing that people from all levels, whether they've had a university education or not, able to understand what I'm saying so I couldn't think of anything anything worse than somebody coming away and having the ideas mixed up so I'm trying to have like a glossary of terms and stuff in, mm. in there as well for people because I think that's really important because some mm. concepts you know you do need to use that academic language because it it's the right fit but actually you know having it there so then people can you know just refer to things for themselves, which is how I learned. I wondered what you both think about the role of Black History Month. Ooh, um, <laughs> I forgot it's it a million either. dollar question. <laughs> um, it's work. That's what I, I think. Um, I think it can be a bit of a poison chalice. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand. You know, it popularizes historical figures. It, it uh, creates a focus, and uh, it um, enables all kinds of organisations and authorities to claim that they are on the right side of history. Hmm. But I've I found that there's a tendency to focus on individuals rather than collective achievements, which is problematic for me because I think it's often the anonymous and the unvoiced who are worthy of historical reference and I also have a problem with the way it, it, it treats black history as a separate entity it gets people off the hook it allows them to say that's black history and this is mainstream history mm. when in fact the two are intertwined and, and can never be separated so you know you, you end up with a ludicrous situation where a teacher can teach children about the industrial revolution and not mention who picked the cotton and that's that's something for black history month and so you get black history month white history year so mm -hmm. you know i have all kinds mm -hmm. of issues with black i think it served its purpose mm -hmm. but in a way i'd say it's passed its sell by 
Mm. and we need to come up with something different it's also being plagiarized and watered down and you know there's talk of diversity history month and all of that and you know i i'm in no way wanting to detract from all the other diverse groups who should get a mention but actually black history month had a very specific history and context and that mm. was the centuries of debasement and uh, invisibility of people of African descent. And, you know, sometimes we kind of lose sight of that in our efforts to uh, ensure that one size fits all. So, mm. yeah, as I say, I think it served its purpose and I think it continues to, to have that role, but I would like to see a debate around other ways of doing it and mm. perhaps, you know, more focus on mainstreaming, not just black history, but black science, black literature, black mm. art, black everything else into the curriculum in a way that is naturally arising you mm. wouldn't need to bend over backwards and make a special effort would you if you mm. just made sure that the way you teach acknowledges the contributions of people across the globe mm. no I, I mean I do think things are starting to move forward on that as well where you know some institutions are looking to do what, what are they calling it black history 365 where it's you know 365 days a year they are doing something on black histories. But yeah, no, I agree with Stella, it's a bit of a poison chalice. I mean, Black History Month is every month for me, so I'm, I barely even notice it because I'm doing all these things anyway. You know? I mean, I think the end goal is to have things more integrated. But I mean, I also think it's good to have things where it's like, this is what we're going to be talking about this month and still have that. So um, I wouldn't want to get rid of it completely, but I think it does need to be Black History 365 days a year. I think what's happening, and I think the reason why we need to make sure we're going into 365, not just because of the marginalization of Black History, but as Stella said, the histories that are being chosen to be taught. Hmm. And what we're seeing during Black History Month, again, this goes into this commercialization the neoliberalization of these things is you know, you're getting top 100 what's it top 100 most powerful black british brighton lists and you know top the and it's like i don't care if someone's on the board of jp morgan i genuinely don't care and i'll probably be like are you serious you know is that really where we want black faces to be this sort of black faces in high places kind of mentality is what Black History Month is, is turning into rather than a kind of, you know, radical intervention into education, which is what it started out of. So mm -hmm. I think that's why we need to challenge its concept, just purely for those reasons. I wonder... Yeah, I agree more. I wonder about more material, what you think about more material efforts to kind of come to terms with histories of slavery and the brutal histories of slavery and colonization. So thinking about things like reparations and re returning artifacts, returning stolen and looted artifacts and what you both think of that. I mean, I think, we, well, I work in a museum, so I'm going to think they're going to have to give everything back and they should give everything back. And I think we should pay, if we want to keep it, we should be paying for it. Like we do everywhere else. If for example, the National Portrait Gallery lent some objects to the British uh, Museum. The British Museum would have to pay for it. Mm. So we should be paying for it. If you want to keep it there, it's going to cost us money. 
that's 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 my position on that and um also in terms of reparations as well um i think you know uh, the caribbean it's obviously sort of um way ahead on this you know in terms of investment particularly around things like climate change as well in those regions as being like a form of reparations so i think there's been a bit of a move away from the sort of individualized reparations into you know how can um britain sort of compensate these states and regions to actually sort of get them on on a level basically from mm. resources that have been taken from them mm. i wanted to say something about pulling down statues um, mm. i think you know actions like that are hugely symbolic but i'm wary of attempts to whitewash our history and i i am far more attracted to some of the subversive ideas that have come out of um, a couple of feminist conferences I've been to in recent years where they were talking about, you know, walking past and triggering an alternative narrative about this white guy on a horse or, you know, things that don't just make those people invisible, but actually tell the history in a more honest way. In terms of museums, while Shardine was talking, I've also been working with uh, museums recently, but I also attended an event a few weeks ago at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. And I was like, my mouth, my jaw was on the floor, um, all these stolen artifacts, I couldn't believe it. And beautifully catalogued, beautifully curated, and you could spend weeks in there just immersed in, in you know, different, different cultures. But not a mention really of the looting and the theft that must have been the context in which these these artifacts were acquired. So what that sparked for me was discussions that I was actually having back in 2004 when I was on the Mayor of London's Commission for African and Asian Heritage. And we went round different heritage organisations across London to try to establish why it was that despite London's diversity, they didn't represent it. Mm. And I think what came up for us was what's needed is a far more holistic approach. For example, we can talk about returning those artefacts, but anyone who knows about climate and Mm. preservation knows that some of our countries are very ill-equipped to preserve those, Mm. those, those items in a way that they will survive so you know I've just recently literally a few days ago come back from Ghana attending a a funeral and the house of the person whose funeral it was has been closed obviously for the last few weeks and already her clothes are beginning to go moldy Mm -hmm. you know now we need to get real about that debate and recognize that part of what giving back entails is the training of curators, the training of archivists, the donation of technology that allows Mm. those countries to preserve the artefacts and also a more generous exchange system so that where those countries can't take responsibility for maintaining those collections, they can at least have access to them and not have to pay for them Mm -hmm. because they do belong to us. So there's there's a whole debate to be had around museums but I think it's hugely important that we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. One last point and uh, that was about reparations and you're right Shardine the Caribbean is way ahead of the game but you know 
as long as those reparations are paid to institutions and don't reach the people whose lives continue to be impacted by the legacies of slavery, I have my doubts. Mm -hmm. I I would not want those monies to disappear into the pockets of some fat cat Mm -hmm. who grows rich, rich at our expense. And the other question, which is probably quite controversial, controversial, but I'm going to say it, I said it at the end of the heart, a, a kick in the belly. The truth is that slavery could not have occurred without the involvement of some very rich and powerful Africans who were prepared mm-hmm. to sell their people down the river. And if we simply present the story of slavery as, you know, people who were victims rather than agents in that story, then there's a question, isn't there, about do we rob ourselves of our own agency? Mm. The truth is there's a debate to be had about who owes what to whom. And there are some very rich Africans who Mm. um, are still on the continent today who are benefiting directly in the same way as there's very rich Europeans mm-hmm. from from that that project so mm-hmm. I think we need a more nuanced debate about reparations that uh, takes account of those issues um, and I think to be, we need to be very 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 sure that if monies are found mm-hmm. they do what Shardine described you know they, they make a real impact on issues of climate change on issues of um, lack of access to education or mm. health care or decent housing, all those things that, that would really make a difference mm. to the lives of people who continue to live, you know, on the backlands of the plantations, let's be mm. honest, you know, mm. um, often in, in not dissimilar conditions. Mm. It's really interesting, um, the sort of practicalities of reparations and what that might look like. I mean, from a legal perspective, you know, some groups have already received reparations namely um victims of the holocaust and their families and mm. um so there is a like it, there is a precedence of this but how it's sort of formulated within the sort of legal structures is very complicated but like um it has to reach certain like certain remits and certain things and it's actually really difficult for us as a diaspora to reach those um mm. namely because the length of time you know, who's descended from who? Where are people? What will those look like? Whereas it was quite an sort of mm. easy process because it was within a few years and there were, you know, certain objects that were taken, people were able to sort of rack up a sort of list effectively of things that were directly taken. Um, whereas when it's things which are, you know, like so described where it's, it's not just personhood, it's entire regions entire nations of people descendants over hundreds of years we're talking five six hundred years of Mm. enslavement so then what does that look like so I mean I think that's why there's so much nervousness from sort of the powers that be around reparations because it's it really strikes at the heart of you know not just a simple kind of transactional Mm. money process we're, we're, we're looking at a whole deep sort of the very basis of what the society is built up built on mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're talking about as internationalists if you I think a really brilliant example is looking at Aboriginal rights indigenous mm-hmm. rights in Australia land grabs and all of that the very idea mm-hmm. that you know those people weren't people mm-hmm. and that the land there was automatically a right for the king and even mm-hmm. now despite them having, I can't remember the technical term for it, they have rights to land there. Their land is given to them as a gift from the state. Mm. 
So mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. in that process, it's not recognizing it was theirs in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it, there's just so many levels to it that, you know, that's why it's such a struggle because it is really kind of pulling apart all the sort of apparatus of the, of the colonial state, essentially. Yeah, I just, and I think what 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 I, I wanted to just add that, you know, mm. when we come back to the discussion about how we memorialise famous people or people who have contributed to this history, um, it's really important that we don't just pretend that they never existed because they did exist and they mm. were hugely important in in not just in this country's development but in this country's self-image and mm. I think to have healthy debates and discussions about the role and the context in which these men usually but sometimes women operated is a far more healthy approach than simply to say you know we can't we can't have a statue that memorializes Cecil Rhodes because he was he was an imperialist mm. but let's talk about imperialism let's use the, the, the facts of this statue to have a really grown-up discussion about what imperialism meant what the impact of Cecil Rhodes policies were on countries like Zimbabwe mm. how the legacies of his intervention are still being, being felt today that to me is a far more useful discussion then, you know, should the statue be allowed to, to stand or not? Hmm. And also, I mean, you, you have to take that entire Oxford University down if we're talking about imperialism. No. <laughs> so how, how far do we go? Yeah, how far yeah. do we go on that, mm. you know? Yeah. 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 So I guess I'm interested in, you know, as historians, we're interested in change over time. So I wondered if there were moments in your lives where something shifted for you politically uh, and if you could just talk about one of those each? I, I think that that question is really difficult to answer because it's so mm. hard to identify just one moment mm. but when I thought about it and in light of Black Lives Matter I think I'd probably point to the impact of the civil rights movement. It definitely created a quantum shift in our global consciousness and mm. the discussions that were being held about race and racism and on a personal level, it, it helped shape my politics and mould my thinking. So I would, I would point out the civil rights as the mo that moment. And I really do hope that Black Lives Matter has the same kind of impact on, on, on the younger generation who, who've lived through it, because you can't unremember, can you? You can't unremember those images of George Floyd mm -hmm. with his neck under the policeman's foot and all the other images that were circulated in the aftermath of that atrocity. So, you know, the fact that people have begun to say, look, this is more than just about police brutality. This is about erasure. This is about inequality. This is about yeah. injustice. We need to keep those conversations alive. And I really do hope that these issues won't go off the agenda in the way that to some extent they did in the aftermath of civil rights. We've had mm. moments, haven't we, in recent decades where issues of race have come to the fore, you know, the Stephen Lawrence moment, the um, uprisings as a result of the murder in Tottenham, I'm trying to remember his name, just just moments, but it all seems to go quiet and suddenly there's another flavour of the month. So I, I really think that 
you know, uh, for me it was civil rights, but I hope that the modern day equivalent will, will have longer and more lasting ramifications, really. In a way, it's just a continuation of the same struggle. So yeah. um, it's a kind of false, yeah. false dichotomy. Well, it's not a tough question, really, because, I mean, on a personal level, it would be different to what I would think on a political level. I mean, on a personal level, I was really politicised by the Iraq war. So that's when I first started doing activism and stuff. So, and that's where I learned about globalisation and capitalism and all that kind of kind of stuff. And that's kind of kept me going. Of course, Black Lives Matter as well, I think. I think attending those early marches, so 2014, 2015, were really exciting because it felt like a new, it felt, well, obviously people had been marching about police brutality forever, but there was something, like it was like a new generation Hmm. of people that were out on the streets on that time. And, you know, taking over the London streets and stuff. And that was really exciting to feel part of that. But I think in the last few years, I think that what I was going to say is actually, I think when I say a moment, it's like a moment, but there's like two things in there, which I think are actually quite important. And obviously Black Lives Matter is one. But then very shortly afterwards, Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party, Mm. I think is quite important. Just from seeing, so I'm 36 now. So just from seeing people who are 25, who were maybe a bit too young for those early BLM marches. And so that, you know, last year was like their sort of big ones. But their political journey has been quite informed by a return to a kind of class-based politics, which has been really apparent to me. So they're calling themselves socialists. They're talking about, I don't know, nationalising public services, those sort of things, which were not, we weren't talking about that at the Mm. conference I was at, that I Mm. organised in 2015. That was just not on the agenda. If you were a trade unionist, it it was literally like, what, what's that? Whereas now, (laughs) now these like, you know, younger millennials and Gen Zs, you go to, sometimes I um, speak at universities and stuff, and they're talking about Marxism like they know it off the back of their hands. And I did not, I was not doing that when I was when I was that age. So that's quite exciting to me. So I think there's still those that conflation of those two moments are still going to have a legacy there. And I think after we with the, the pandemic really showed that up. And then just before that, we had Brexit, obviously, and the, that horrible election where we really saw the state move to try and destroy something positive. I think for myself, I haven't witnessed that in like in the most explicit way that I think I've ever seen in my life and or in my lifetime, actually. And just hearing from younger people still carrying those politics is mm. actually really exciting. So, mm. you know, I, I do, it's, even though things are really horrible, and crap and we've got this sort of borderline fascist government because they are quite frightening and the Mm. Labour Party is also a complete mess as well I do think that people who are sort of 30 under are really quite exciting Mm. politically Mm. so I'm I'm more than happy because I think my generation are sort of early millennials mid-millennials were a bit crap 
So I'm glad that someone else is actually doing what we, you know, doing what we should have done. All right. Well, that leads very nicely into my final question, which is these are pretty tough times we're living through at the moment, pretty hard times. And I mean, I get lots of hope from both of your work and the hope in your work. And I wondered what keeps you both hopeful in difficult times. (laughs) That's such a hard question. What keeps me hopeful? I mean, to be honest, it really is just talking to young people Hmm. and sometimes older people, but especially younger people as well. I think what's seeing the sort of support for Palestine at the moment amongst that generation, I think it's really brilliant. And um, also them sort of taking to task this kind of neoliberal stuff that they see and the the hypocrisies of that, because I thought why it felt a bit like I was some sort of outlier pushing against the tides but um now you know that's not really the case anymore and mm. um that does give me hope so I, I do feel like with the next years that we we will see some actual sort of returns or kind of more radical ideas like mm. a back against that I really hope you're right Shardine um I swing between you know, despair and, and hope at the moment. And it varies depending on what side of the bed I wake up. But I think if I really think about what gives me hope, it is the knowledge that black women have been through worse. And we've not only lived mm-hmm. to tell the tale, but to sing it and dance it and and find ways of celebrating our lives and our humanity, despite every attempt to destroy it and the knowledge that it is our collective power that brings about change like Shardine you know I've always been a staunch supporter of trade unionism I do believe that we cannot it's not sustainable to continue to promote a society based on greed and unequal use of resources etc etc I suppose I'd, I'd just finish by saying that I am constantly reminded, as I said earlier, that we're here today because of something someone did before we came. Mm. And that, you know, resonates with our discussion about the value of history. But um, to me, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, and I I want to see my children and grandchildren pick up the banner and continue to not just fight for, but imagine a world which is free of poverty and war and and hunger and and, and gendered violence. Mm. Um, I think that we need to continue to believe in the possibility of that, despite Trump, despite Brexit, despite the pandemic, despite climate change. We need to be able to believe that we have the power to change these things and, um, yeah, more power to those who, who are engaged in that struggle. Many thanks to Stella Dadzi, and Shardine Taylor-Stone for taking part in this conversation. And you can find more information about their work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.